0: Hello, America, and happy Wednesday. Hard to believe already Wednesday, but that holiday on Monday kind of changed the week, which was good. Always good to have an extra day with family and friends and a little relaxation, a little football, a little baseball, a lot of good stuff. We've got an amazing show for you today. Two great guests back to back. First up, Congressman Chip Roy from the great state of Texas. He is pushing Republicans to come up with ideas that solve things, not with rhetoric, not with contrast with Democrats. Actual ideas like the 1994 class came up with when Newt Gingrich swept Republicans into power in the House for the first time in a half century. he's going to be developing his own commitment to his voters his own ideas that's going to be released. He's giving us a sneak peek today on the show also has plenty to say about the border crisis, the fentanyl crisis, the student loan debt, the size of government and also the state of the Republican Party and its leadership. You're not going to want to miss that. And then in the second half of the show, James Kimmy. you may not have heard of his name, but he's doing really important work. He started a nonprofit a year ago called the Senate Working Group. And its goal is to train the staff that advises and carries out the day-to-day duties for U.S. senators so that they're more effective, more efficient. They get more for your dollar, your tax dollar, and they avoid some of the pitfalls of bureaucracy in Washington. The Senate Working Group's doing amazing stuff. And James at the forefront of that group, is also a very bright, young, smart political analyst. He's beginning to put together the confines of what the November 2022 midterm elections are going to turn on. He's going to talk to us about some races to watch that you might not have on your calendar. One of them we've been talking about a little bit, Colorado Senate. Keep an eye on that. Michael Bennett may be in some trouble there. The Democrat, a really great candidate on the Republican side, making a difference. Joe O'Day. And we're going to talk about some of the other races, maybe Washington State's in play, Oregon Governor's in play, Nevada, U.S. Senate to play. There's a lot of down-talking of Republican chances in the Senate. I actually think in talking to frontline people that there's some optimism for some unexpected wins for Republicans. So no better person to put that in perspective than James Kimmy, who, by the way, wrote a wonderful Fox News op-ed this week called, Electing GOP Senate Majority in 2022 May Depend on an Upset in this state. That's Colorado we're talking about. So back to back, Chip Roy, James Kimmy, just right after this commercial break. Hey, folks, have you heard of cancer fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and vegetables may actually lower your risk of cancer. Think about that for a second. That's really important. Hopefully, you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Always excited to have this next guest on our show. He's a straight talker. He calls balls and strikes like they are, and he's got a great sense of what everyday people in America want from their government. He is from the great state of Texas, Congressman Chip Roy. Congressman, great to have you back on the show.
1: Yeah, John, always good to be on. Thanks for uh, what you do to keep the American people informed about what's going on in that crazy city um, while they go about doing their, their daily life.
0: It is a crazy city, as you know, and uh, you're uh, often blowing the whistle on the city. I want to start with something. I-, I thought you had a really powerful uh, op-ed the other day, not one additional penny for federal tyranny. And I- it really gets at one of the truisms that a lot of times conservatives don't want to talk about. But in many ways, Republicans have been complicit in the growth of this monstrous government, going back to homeland security all the way through until today. Uh, you want to stop that cycle, don't you?
1: Yeah, I do very much. I mean, first of all, as a general matter, uh, it's important for everybody to understand that the founders gave us uh, the power of the purse and House of Representatives, the people's house, for a reason. They wanted it to be in the body closest to the people, as the check. In James Madison's words, the power of the purse was the check against the uh, overreach of the executive branch. That's why they gave it to us in the House of Representatives, so we should use it. Said Republicans end up cowering in the corner going, oh, my God, they might accuse me of a shutdown, and, you know, as if you're not capable of flipping that around on Democrats and saying, well, it's you who would be shutting down government. Our job is to spend money the way the American people want us to. So now let's fast forward to this September. When the government funding expires, then there's a question. What do we do? Well, already, predictably, Democrats are saying, well, let's just do a short-term continuing resolution into December. Mind you, December will be a lame duck, right, where Democrats still control the House. And they will do that, and they'll pile on a bunch of stuff. They're already doing it. Ukraine, they want to pile on something about marriage. So why would Republicans give them the pen? Why would Republicans give them that power? Republicans should pass or agree only, only agree to a clean CR into the next year and allow the next Congress to decide the priorities of spending with American people. And Republicans have got to stop getting trapped into talking about $30 trillion of debt and all of that stuff that kind of eyes glaze over. And instead talk fundamentally about why we write blank check after blank check, borrow money, print money, tax Americans to spend money, to fund the very tyranny and the very bureaucrats that are undermining your liberty, funding an FBI to go after parents who dare question the school board, uh, funding, An IRS agent that's going to go after small businesses, 85,000 new IRS agents, funding a DHS that refuses to secure the border, right? Why would we do that? And I think that's something that every American ought to be asking your Republican representatives. Why would you write them a blank check to fund tyranny?
0: Yeah, it really is a great question. It should be the question that people ask themselves as they go to the vo- uh, voting box on, on November 8th. The the moment we find in our country's history, you, you are so eloquent at talking about it, but we've got our schools teaching children to be embarrassed by their country's history, to apologize for the country. We've got that critical race theory coming through. We've got transgenderism coming through. we got the IRS growing bigger. The FBI clearly politicized and also not even capable of staying in its own guardrails Uh, At what moment do the the power structure in Washington realize that we've created a monster that has to be disassembled? Do you think we're hitting that point where people realize it's time to not build more things, but disassemble some of what we've created?
1: Well, I would certainly hope so, right? I mean, at at some point, you have to ask yourself whether or not the American people are better off in kind of a little bit of a Reagan-esque way, but in general, about carrying out their daily life without being interfered with by bureaucrats. And not just Washington, okay, Let, let's be clear. We've got something that's actually even worse than what Ronald Reagan was trying to combat when he rolled into Washington in 1981. We have now an exploded corporate cronyism riding on the back of government largesse that is trampling over the American people. Big healthcare is destroying your ability to go to the doctor of your choice while insurance companies get enriched, telling you what your healthcare looks like. Big defense, is getting us wrapped into 20-year authorizations of force and now sending $56 billion to Ukraine, and now they're back at the trough asking us to send more. The big corporate America, the big tech interest shutting down your free speech, I could go down the list. That is a massive problem in our society in terms of freedom with the ESG movement, with all of the capitalism or the capital that's getting constrained by these Leftists in corporate boardrooms. And you've got this collusion between government and corporate, uh, big corporate America that's trampling over small businesses and the little guy. And uh, I think we need to have an agenda that is for small businesses, for hardworking Americans, not for the big corporate uh, leviathans that are in bed with the government cronies.
0: Yeah, and and you we've been talking, or at least I've heard him talk about it for quite some time. Newt Gingrich and Speaker McCarthy, uh, uh, Leader McCarthy, have been saying, "Hey, there is a contract with America or a commitment with America. Are we going to see that in its entirety? And is that a good platform to run on in uh, the fall election?"
1: Well, I believe, and, and like I only know a little bit more than you know. Um, I, I believe that a commitment to America is is coming in mid September. Here's what I suspect. I suspect that it will have a few good things. Some of us have been advocating for the things that we think ought to be in it uh, across issues, in my case, particularly border security, but a bunch of issues. Um, But my guess is it will also fall short. Um, I think it will outline some things that we ought to follow, but I'm afraid that it won't be as aggressive as it should be. So to that end, uh, I'm gonna be putting out to my own constituents tomorrow, what I call my pledge to stand up for America. And I'm going to outline all the things that I think Republicans should be doing. I'm going to make that public, uh, not in a way to compete, but because I owe to my constituents what I believe we ought to be doing. And I believe that we ought to fight on September 30th to stop a CR from going into a lame duck. I believe that if we're given the power in January, we should stop the continued funding of IRS agents, FBI, uh, CDC, NIH that are jamming people with uh, vaccine mandates. I think we should end those vaccine mandates. I think we should demand that we secure the border. I think we should make all government funding contingent on getting back to sanity on those key issues that the American people are sick of in terms of energy, border, vaccine mandates, and the authoritarian state. And then I think we should advance an agenda that the American people want to see us advance. And that means spending within our means. That means healthcare freedom. That means a strong border. That means energy freedom. So you can get the energy of your desires. That means stopping the Chinese Communist Party from buying up land in the United States. It means having a strong defense that isn't woke. It means going to war against wokeism. It means education where you empower parents. Let's go on the offense. Let's go on, uh, you know, take it to them. Let's take it to the Democrats instead of playing defense. That's what I'm going to fight for. I think some of that will be in a in a so-called commitment. But I don't think it's going to be as aggressive as it should be. And so I'm going to fight to make it make it be more aggressive.
0: Yeah. And it also gives you you, one of the great things that your constituents, and I see this all the time when I follow your Twitter feed, you're always out there engaging Uh, your constituents on the issues of the day. I know you did something today with, you know, a school district for fentanyl, helping kids to make sure they don't pick up some poisonous pills someday. You've got the Border Education Summit you've done. You really believe in having ideas and keeping those front and center with the constituency that you represent. Uh, Is that catching on? Do you see more and more members of Congress now realizing that ideas are what win elections?
1: You know, I hope so. I, I'm afraid that we kind of fall back into the path of just saying, well, we're not the Democrats. Let's go raise money. Let's take back the House. I'm trying to say, hey, like, let's go take back America, right? Let's go stand up for America, fight for the American people who sent us to Washington to change things. To your point, yes, I go out and visit with constituents every time I get a chance, whether it's doing like you just observed, and thank you for observing it, which is doing a public service announcement with respect to fentanyl for a school district in Bernie, Texas, a suburb of San Antonio. Or whether it's just going to a catfish fry for a volunteer fire department where I was on Saturday, where there's about 4,000 people in very rural western Gillespie County in central Texas. Uh, why? Because I talk to everyone, you know, all of them around that volunteer fire department about what matters to them. And I know what matters to them. They just want to live their life. They recognize there is man and woman. They want their kids to be taught Americans great. They want their border to be secure. They want to have a strong country, strong military. They don't want to push all this woke garbage. They want to be kind to each other. They want to make sure everybody can live free. But they don't want to have a government that is woke, undermining our energy supply, undermining our security, undermining our very value system. And Republicans ought to just articulate that and fight for it but actually fight for it, John, not just give lip service. Yeah,
0: it's one thing to say. It's another thing to do it. And that's, you know, that's what made the class of 1994 so well regarded, which is that when they made the contract with America, they actually delivered it. They actually went out and voted on these things and and got it through. And that's really
1: important, John, because remember that Democrats controlled the House, controlled the Congress for the better part of half a century or more, 60 years. And Newt and and the guys that came in in 94, they changed the game. And now Republicans have been more uh, likely to have the majority since then. And we've lost it a couple of times for a few years. And so we've got to remember that the American people expect us to deliver on ideas. We are never going to be able to outbid Democrats. They believe in government providing solutions and providing money. We don't. We believe in individuals. We believe in civil society. We believe in churches. We believe in strong local governments and and, and people taking care of each other in their communities. We believe in capitalism and free enterprise, but we believe that we can do that together. We don't believe in top-down government or corporate solutions. We should be on offense about why those things make people more prosperous, make their lives better, and why so many people still come to this country right now as, quote, horrible as it is. You know, hundreds of thousands of people keep pouring across our border.
0: It is a, it is a great um, irony that Democrats talk down the country all day while realizing that all these people coming in want to get to this amazing country. It's, uh, it really calls them out for their, their hypocrisy. You have obviously run once for a leadership position. You, you're an ideas man. I mean, people talk about you. They know you're constantly generating great conservative ideas. When the leadership elections come on post-election, do you put yourself up for a position? Are you interested in being in the leadership of the House in the next Congress?
1: Well, I mean, I'll give you two answers to this. I promise not a pun. It's what I really believe. I mean, number one right now, I'm getting a little tired of the sort of like uh, little high school races for, you know, prom, you know, homecoming king and queen or whatever. We have a job to do. We should send a message to the American people about what we're going to do. We should guarantee that we maximize our seats in November. Then we should talk about the direction we want to go and figure out who's going to take us there. Um, that's the order I think we ought to take it in. Uh, when, I decided to, when I decided to run for Congress, there were already 17 people in the race, but I looked at the race and I didn't think the field had what we needed. So I got in and I ran and I got through 18 and they got through a runoff and then the, got through the election. So here I am. I view it the same way. I ran against Elise because I don't think anybody should be coordinated. I like Elise. She's a friend. Uh, her voting record wasn't as conservative as I would have preferred. But I ran because nobody should just be anointed. So I'll see what happens in November. If there are good people there running and I feel like we've got what we need uh, or close to it and there's a discussion, great. But if there's a void or if nobody's putting out the ideas that need to be put out or challenging the status quo, then maybe I'll jump in. But right now, I just want to get the American people to understand what we stand for. And I'm going to do that on my own. I hope to be able to do that with whatever's put out onto the commitment, but I haven't seen it yet. So, you know, I'll reserve judgment.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's the right steps too, right? Never put the cart before the horse. It, we, there's a process here that has to be followed. First thing is to get into control of Congress, and then go there. You're a farmer. I know you've done a lot of farming. You come from an area that has a lot of farms. You look at uh, the energy crisis and I know gasoline prices are down, but uh, diesel is really not. And diesel has such an enormous impact on the food supply, uh, uh, as well as on uh, things like fertilizer. Are we heading into a potential energy slash food crisis in the next couple of years?
1: Well, I mean, we certainly have a lot of uh, serious strains on the system. Um, I don't, I, I hesitate to predict how bad it will get, but look, with what's going on in Ukraine with the fertilizer issue, I mean, we have, my family has a very small uh, cotton farm in West Texas uh, and, you know, they didn't plant this year because, you know, we just say it was gonna be too expensive with the fertilizer and all the, the uh, variables at play. And then to your point about uh, overall on diesel and, and then the, the uh, cost of you know, gas lays down a little bit because we just literally dumped our strategic petroleum reserve. We just emptied it. So, you know, until we unleash American energy, uh, unleash American oil and gas, unleash American nuclear. So that we're a fully powered, fully engaged economy without constraints on our capital, then we're going to have these kinds of issues and hiccups. And when you pile on the Ukraine situation, Russia on top of it, then you're going to have issues. Um, look, I believe in the American people. I believe in the American farmer. I believe in you know, American ingenuity. But you got to unleash them. And right now, we have a whole lot of corporate interests, including Chinese interests, by the way, that own American land, that own American meat processing. We have too much, too much foreign control of our energy because this administration has constrained American energy, all in pursuit, by the way, of, of a crazy policies. Do you know China has 1,100 coal-fired plants? We have 250. But China is building one coal-fired plant a week. We're not doing squat. We have very few gas-fired plants in the pipeline. We have very few uh, plants in the pipeline besides the one being built in Georgia. And now we're wondering why our grids are getting weak and why we are struggling. We need to unleash that. The American people need to know we're not going to dent CO2. You take every car off the road in America and replace them with a Tesla, your demand on your grid is going to go way up, and you're not going to dent CO2. It's almost a wash or a minimal dent on CO2 production while China is ramping it up. It's insane what we're doing to our country under the energy policies of this administration.
0: Yeah, it really is. And and it's only getting worse. We're not we're not fixing the problem. We've created some temporary relief, but it doesn't solve the problem whatsoever. Last question, because you, you do so much to speak up for free speech and liberty. Uh, I think a lot of people six, eight months ago were dubious of the idea that our government was directly involved in censorship. We now have the confirmations of the Hunter Biden laptop. We got uh, uh, censoring people's what turned out to be true comments about COVID concerns on Facebook Uh, The idea that there are numerous federal agencies working with news media and social media to restrain Americans' free speech. Republicans get in. How do they fix it? How do they stop federal agencies from canceling people's free speech?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question. This whole revelation, uh, you know, of Zuckerberg uh, saying, oh, yeah, I was working with the FBI, uh, you know, that, that's insane, right? I mean, and, and we're seeing that it's across the board with corporate America. It's what I was alluding to with the power of corporate America when combined with the power of the government and you have a real problem. I was just having a conversation with a good buddy of mine. that's uh, a public person, so I won't say who it was, but it was very, very knowledgeable in all things Department of Justice, National Security. And we're talking about how the FBI needs an overhaul and it needs to get back to its roots, which is combating its it's law enforcement roots where you're working with local law enforcement and you're combating organized crime, going after, for example, the now cartels and human traffickers and gangs, not using the power of the FBI to put edu official tags on parents for daring to challenge somebody at a school board meeting. It's insane. And when you combine that within the corporate culture, and then you're targeting people's free speech, now you have a situation where people are being targeted. And here's an example in Austin, Texas, right? It's not a corporate example, it's a government example, where the fire department in Austin, Texas just tried to shut down in silence a volunteer chaplain, an eight-year volunteer, a great guy, I've talked to him, who got pushed out because he dared to put something out on social media under his own name about men and women and about how men shouldn't be racing against girls in in, in athletics and he got pushed out by the austin fire department man it's getting to a place where anything you say is going to be you're going to be attacked for it corporate america uh government are coming after you for your closely held beliefs and the last point in finland you had a member of parliament being targeted because that woman who's in parliament dare to quote scripture when it came to the marriage and, and how you interact with men, men interact with women. It's, in, it's incredible what's happening to free speech. Now, the good news is the Constitution laid out those principles. They're God-given rights. We've got some good arguments being made in courts, but we the people are going to have to stand up and make sure that we protect rights. And to answer your question, we have got to look at some of the size of these companies. I, I'm, I think we should be looking at some of the antitrust issues. We should obviously look at Section 230, but in general, we should just be looking at uh, how corporations are using their power against people and expose that, and I think that uh, a lot of people will then uh, respond accordingly. Yeah,
0: I think that's exactly right. Sir, it's always an honor to have you on the show. You're full of ideas, and you, you say what you mean, and you mean what you say, and I it's such an honor to have a person in Washington that does that, because they're hard to find in this town.
1: Well, John, I appreciate it. That's kind of you, but look, I'm just trying to do what I said I would do. And uh, thank you for continuing to give people the opportunity to hear uh, some of our voices and expose what's going on. And uh, we'll keep at it. Look, God gave us this great country, and the founders gave it to us, and it's our job to, you know, carry it on for our kids and grandkids. So we'll do it.
0: There's no doubt about it, especially with determined folks like you. Really appreciate the time today, Congressman. Have a great week you too god bless thank you sir god bless you as well all right folks we'll take a quick commercial break when we come back we're going to take a little focus on the senate races uh with a really interesting guy who is helping train the next generation of senate staffers you're going to want to hear this interview it's really fun right after the commercial break they're going to send you a complete title scan of your home's title and your first 30 days of triple lock home title protection. That's legendary protection, by the way. It's free. HomeTitleLock.com. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS. One more time, go to HomeTitleLock.com today and protect your most important asset, the equity in your home.
2: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
0: All right, folks. Welcome back from the commercial break. Our next guest is part of a very important nonprofit group that's making a difference, not only in Capitol Hill, but all across this country. If you haven't heard of this group, they're doing amazing things. It's called the Senate Working Group. Their executive director is James Kimmy, and he joins us right now. James, great to have you on the show. John, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great. I love the mission of your group. I love what the Senate Working Group is doing. For those in America who haven't heard of it or don't know, tell us a little bit about what it's doing to make Capitol Hill more efficient, make it more effective for Americans.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Senate Working Group is a nonprofit organization and our whole goal and mission is really to provide educational trainings and workshops and networking events for Senate staff. Um, Very seldom do the staff um, on either in either chamber, the House or the Senate, receive kind of like you know the the material that they need to really just be better and more efficient at in their role. You know, when we think of Capitol Hill, we think primarily of the politicians, of the bosses, of these um, of these folks. But so we don't really spend much time on the staff, and so and the staff ranges from ages. You know, you're thinking kids right out of college to people well into their careers. And so what we do is we um, kind of provide unique opportunities and forums for them to hear from um, policy experts and you know people who are really into the weeds on these issues. And we provide them an off the record setting for them to have conversations and kind of learn um, not only about policy, but then also just how to, you know, how to legislate and how to run an office and, um, you know, kind of just run the gambit on the different opportunities that we can provide Um to them. And so it's been an invaluable resource is the feedback that we've been given. Um, We we started, we launched last year, and to kind of see where we are in this first year, it's been um it's been quite the ride, and it's it's really remarkable. Um, for example, we did the first ever Republican uh Senate Chiefs of Staff retreat back in March. Um we ended up getting 42 out of the 50 Senate Republican chiefs to show up. And um it was a two day event it was great yeah it was a lot of fun and we're um we're now doing we're in the midst of planning our senate uh, working group christmas party which will be in dc again we're inviting all the chiefs the senators Um, committee staff directors and their staff. And then what was really exciting is actually this past summer, we rented out one of the popular venues here in DC and hosted a hog roast. We did the Senate Republican hog roast, where we ended up with 700 staffers who showed up for this event. And that was more of just like a networking event for them to kind of get to know each other, um, which I kind of thought was um, a foregone conclusion that they all knew each other. But Believe it or not, in the Senate, you know, each office kind of works in their independent silos. Each office has like, you know, 40 staffers and they kind of work within their own office. And so being able to kind of bring all the offices together for them to meet each other and kind of just like, you know, collaborate and network, I think at the end of the day, it's good for them. And I think it's better for the American people, because, as you know, and as your listeners know, it's, you know, we need more talking and we need more dialogue and we need more uh, working together in order to really pass. Some meaningful um, legislation for the benefit of the
0: American people. Boy, that's amazing! I couldn't agree more. What a great mission, and it's so true. I mean, I don't, I don't think if, if for people who haven't been in Washington, they don't appreciate how important the staff is. A, a senator with a good staff, is just so effective because there's just so many rules and policies and procedures and there's all the uh, all of the connectivity to constituents that can take up a lot of time. And so having well-trained staffers really makes Congress more effective. It's really fascinating. In fact, it's kind of fascinating that a group like this wasn't created sooner. I mean, what was the inspiration for this? Because it's such a great idea
2: yeah so um it's actually funny yeah because nothing like this does exist in the senate nor had it existed in the senate there's a group that does exist in the house um that does similar work and they've been very successful since the 80s doing it um i have some really good friends that work on capitol hill and my background i'm an attorney but i've done like philanthropic advising for high net wealth families kind of in the nonprofit space for the last decade and I kind of got some feedback from them of like some of the frustrations they're dealing with. Um, and they, they, they kind of wish that there was opportunity for, you know, off the hill opportunities for them to kind of just like, hear from policy experts, kind of meet people that are actually on the ground doing stuff. And I kind of thought about it and I kind of, you know, brainstormed with a few others. And we thought, you know what, there actually is an idea here. There's an organization behind this. So we, uh, you know, I'm 34 and, uh, you know, my friends are around the same age. So we kind of just said, you know, what? let's go ahead and do it. And um, we put our brains together. I took a couple of weeks to build this from the ground up.
0: And a year later, we have a few million dollars in revenue and we're doing pretty well. Really remarkable, and you know, one of the great things from the world that you come from. Donors want return on investment, right? They want to know that, for, and and that's a many times in government, return on investment is like the, the most uh, our, uh, thing that no one thinks about, right? Or just we have our job, we're entitled to our job, but creating efficiency is so important in the philanthropic world to make every dollar count. And so, bringing that mindset, I think, to the Senate staff is so fascinating. Bringing it to government. Is fascinating because uh, most most government agencies are not that efficient. What a what a great idea! Now you you're doing some writing as well. Uh, had a fantastic op-ed that caught my eye in Fox News. Uh, electing GOP Senate Majority in 2022 may depend on an upset in this state. I've been talking about this state a lot. Tell us why you have a focus on Colorado.
2: Yeah, it's um, pretty fascinating. So you know, I think we can all agree that this past summer was fairly contentious with regards to the primary season. Um, Just looking at the different Republican primaries across the country, you know, we knew what was going on. We kind of saw what was going on, but very seldom did we hear Colorado. You know, we know about Georgia. We know about Pennsylvania. um, We hear about Arizona and some other states, but no one's kind of looking at Colorado. So I did like a deep dive into the post primary numbers to see um, where people were voting, how they were voting and, kind of what the makeup of that was and as i was doing that i started seeing more and more interesting things coming out of colorado and so i continue to just continue to dive deeper into it and what's fascinating about colorado is unlike most states where you know a majority of registered voters are going to be democrat or a majority of registered voters are republican colorado actually the largest voting block in colorado is the unaffiliated independent voter so when you look at that you know there's three about a little bit over three 3.7 million registered voters in Colorado in the June primary about 32% of them actually voted so that was 1.2 million Amazing. and then when you looked at the numbers Michael Bennett who's the incumbent Democrat senator who got in in 2010 yeah. um and you know is seeking reelection now he received 516,000 votes, but then the two top Republican candidates in that primary combined received over 633,000. So I was like, wait a second, this is over 100,000 more people voted Republican in this race. Like, is there momentum? Like, what what does this look like? And then, so when you break that down further, there's about a million registered Democrats in Colorado. There's about 930,000 registered. Republicans in Colorado, but there's 1.7 million registered independents in Colorado. So no one's looking at it because everyone just assumes Colorado's a blue state. Um, you know, went in 2016, it went for Hillary by five points. Um, it kind of has just been on that path that people have kind of just written it off. But what's interesting is the numbers are there, the momentum is there, the Republican messaging is working. Yeah. So it's just a matter now of, yeah, of being able to. Some good candidates there too,
0: right? That's one of the interesting. You know, candidates make a difference. Uh, they, they create enthusiasm. You know, Heidi Ganal in the um, in the governor's race, the Senate race. You've got two really strong candidates now, don't you?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I don't I think probably one of the strongest Republican candidates in this cycle in the Senate is Joe Day in Colorado. He is a Denver based, born and raised construction CEO. He's like your everyday, like American blue collar worker. The guy is like salt of the earth, which is a complete stark contrast to Michael Bennett, who is a D.C. native, grew up in D.C., moved after law school to Colorado and was working for, you know, various different billionaires in a foundation capacity in Colorado, and then was given essentially this seat by now his colleague, John Hickenlooper. And what's really fascinating when you look at this and you look at Michael Bennett, so, you know, we all know 42% of this country, you know, 42% of this country actually likes Joe Biden, the rest of the country doesn't. That's the same number in Colorado, 42% of Coloradans, you know, like Joe Biden. What's really fascinating is Michael Bennett's popularity is actually behind the president. He's only 41. His popularity rating is at 41 percent. The guy's not
0: popular at all.
2: It's hard he to be less popular re-election. than Joe
0: Biden right now. So that's a it, tough situation.
2: It's, yeah, it's real. it's yeah, it's essentially impossible. Right. But somehow he's been <laughs> able to figure it out. And what's funny is that when he was up for reelection, which was in 2016, he won by the same margins that Hillary Clinton won. So to say that it was him, or that people voted for him because of him, it's hard to make that connection because it was, he was second in line to the top of the ballot. So um, his first election in 2010, he only won by 1.7 points. He's very vulnerable. Um, I'm very bullish on Colorado. I think this is gonna be a good pickup for Republicans. Um, Joe O'Day has been campaigning very strategically targeting those independent voters, he knows who's going to, you know, who's going to show up and, you know, give him the seat. Um, He has been very clear on the fact that he is not a party guy, that he is going to go to D.C. and represent the best interests of Colorado. And to be honest, like that resonates amongst those independent voters. And Independent voters in Colorado, just like independent voters and most voters and most Americans, are frustrated over inflation and gas prices. And Michael Bennett has a 98% voting record with Joe Biden. Um, He's incredibly unpopular. And you just look at the numbers and you look at the momentum. I think this is going to be a sleeper for this year. I think um, this is going to be November 9th, the day after the election. This is what every headline and every news outlet is going to be discussing is because no one's giving at the time, um, aside from you and I and a few others. But I think this is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a good pickup for Republicans. And you, you're starting to see more of the national organizations now starting to look at Colorado. I know um, a lot of the large Republican, you know, whether it's the NRSC or some of these other Republican groups and even big donors are now starting to um, put money into this race because they think that, you know, if we lose one state, well, you know, maybe we can make up for that loss in Colorado. And so um, I'm very optimistic on that. And when you look at Colorado, you kind of look at the whole Southwest and you're seeing a, a, a momentum yeah. in that area that most have kind of written off, in the, especially in the last maybe two presidential cycles. 2020 was a tough presidential cycle in both Nevada and Arizona. But we have very strong Senate candidates in those two states, they and sure um, you know, I could spend hours with you, John, talking about just the different metrics, um, especially like with regards to Arizona and the impact that the Latino vote is going to have with um, Adam Laxalt and Catherine Cortez
0: Masto. You know, it's so interesting because 538 keeps moving uh, the Senate more and more safe, but people I talk to on the ground and pollsters that are in polling. The individual races actually think this is going to be a small Republican majority. As you look out now, you mentioned Nevada, uh, where Laxalt has a really strong chance against a weak incumbent. Uh, New Hampshire, where there's a potential uh, that one's in play. Are you bullish on the Senate GOP takeover or or do you buy the 538 view that, um, that uh, Democrats are going to hold on?
2: Look, I think I I can probably speak for uh, a lot of your listeners, and these polls are hit or miss, right? You know, we saw it. We started seeing it in 2012 when Romney was up by Ob- over Obama leading, right. you know, into election night, and then we saw what happened. So I kind of take each poll with a grain of salt. Um, I do look at 538. Um, I respect that the work that they do, but they, you know, they give a grading system for their polls as well, right? And they put, you know, they put a lot of deference for the ones that they think are are higher rated than others and so i kind of just look at the totality of like the various different polls and you know the reality is um it all depends on how they do the how they do the polling and how who are they reaching to a lot of these polls will have you know they'll poll registered voters well that's actually not a strong indicator because the reality is you want to poll likely voters you want to poll the people that are actually going to show up the people that are actually going to vote you know i said in colorado you know they're three point 7 million registered voters, but only 32% of them actually voted. So if you're spending your time and money polling those 3.7, you know, is it going to be an accurate poll at the end of the day when the reality is, you know, only 1.2 of them actually showed up? So you want to poll those 1.2. So when you look at that, I'm actually um, bullish and confident on a Republican majority come January. Um, the number I'm sticking with right now is 5248. Yep. Um, and that is with a toss-up of Pennsylvania and Georgia. Those polls, um, there was a poll that came out last week that has Herschel Walker now leading yes. Warnock, I believe, by one point. So maybe the tide is turning there and my numbers will change. Um, but I think, and and we, we don't know about New Hampshire yet. That primary is coming up September right. 13th. Um, so, But I'm confident we could get to the 52. Um, With a pickup in Nevada, I think we pick up Arizona. And as I said earlier, I think Colorado will go red as well.
0: And Arizona, not only because Kelly gets tied to Biden with his voting record, but as you mentioned, the Latino vote is really beginning to shift in that state with the the border issues, the crime issues, uh, the far left agenda, which doesn't hit Catholic or Latino families uh, oh, it's crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the misalignment. It's crazy. So that, that could be good. One. I want to throw one out there because you and I were talking offline about it. I I'm with you on this one. I've watched her uh, rise 17 points in the poll since June, uh, but Tiffany Smiley in Washington State, is that a sleeper?
2: Yeah, so th- this will be, if um, Tiffany's able to pull it off, this will be the biggest upset that we've seen since Hillary Clinton didn't show up at the Javits Center that November 9th,
0: 2016.
2: <laughs> um, it, 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 it Patty Murray, such an establishment, you know, Democrat, she's been there forever, since the early 90s. She is lockstep with Joe Biden. She is Joe Biden's Senator. Um, She, they have a weird, so very similar to California, they have a jungle primary. So they take the top two finishers, um, irrespective of political party, and then those top two finishers compete for the general in November. And Patty Murray won that, I believe. It was almost like close to 50%. And then Tiffany Smiley came in at about 32 or 33%. So when those, after that was done, early July, there were polls that had Murray up by 18 to 20 points, which for anybody like that's not shocking, right? She's, right. she's been there forever. Yeah. She has the money, she More has the machine. Yeah correct absolutely and like seattle right seattle's not going to go red let's be honest but you know there's so much you know there's other communities out there that you know and so many people that are kind of leaving those urban areas and moving into the country that could make up for it but what was really encouraging was actually a month after those 18 to 20 point polls came out in august there was a poll that only had um smiley trailing murray by six and in fact last week another poll came out that had smiley trailing Murray by only three. So the gap, by the way, inside
0: that's inside the margin of error for that poll. So it's basically in toss-up territory now, right?
2: It's tied. And then when you look also, when you look at the registrations, the voter registrations in each state, it's also fairly fascinating because in in Washington there was like an eighteen point gap between you know registered Democrats and registered Republicans, meaning that. You know, there were a lot more, by 18 points, more registered Democrats in the state than there were Republicans. Well, that was back in the 90s. What we saw earlier this year with recent registration numbers is that actually that gap has been closed to single digits. We're looking at a seven point difference now an 11 point swing in the last essentially two decades. So there's something happening in Washington. Um, People aren't looking at it for obvious reasons. When you're, when you have a finite amount of donor money and you're trying to allocate it to the, to the top races um, where you think you can win. Like I don't blame them for not looking at Washington, um, but I think the environment is prime. Joe Biden's popularity in that state is abysmal. Yeah. Uh, Patty Murray is Joe Biden's senator. Washingtonians, just like the rest of America, is frustrated with the you know gas prices, soaring inflation, that, you know um, the cost of housing, the, the homelessness issue. Poverty, drug use, all that's Happening in the Pacific Northwest as it is in the rest Of the country and you know people Are going to take it out we know this right we know midterm Elections in the the president's first Term in office tends to be like a report card That we would get at school and this is an opportunity for the American People to cast their grade and I Think that you know Tiffany Smiley Being such a strong candidate you know she was on This show and um, I think your listeners probably Enjoyed listening to her because she is on fire She's great she's passionate she Cares about her state she cares about her community And you know and her family like her family has, you know, has served this country for so long. And I think that there's an opportunity. So, um, yeah, I would love to follow back up with you and your listeners uh, after the election and talk about some of these sleepers that, uh, yeah. that came out of nowhere. I think
0: you're on to something. I, and, and when I work in the ground with the real uh, pollsters that actually do the daily tracking, there, there is a movement towards the Republican candidates yeah. and a movement away from any. Democrat who is very closely associated with Biden. Biden has a toxicity that's actually showing up. People want to take out their anger at Biden on the candidate that they think has been assisting them. And so you're starting to see some of that movement. I want to run through a couple of other dynamics that are unusual to see. Um, uh, Tim Ryan uh, uh, bagged off a photo op with Biden in July when Biden came to Ohio. Mandela Barnes did it this week in Wisconsin. Uh several others are uh, uh Fetterman couldn't uh make a time for the president's visit in Pennsylvania, which probably turned out well given how unpopular the red wall speech was. Uh mm-hmm. the idea that the top marquee Democrats have to run away from their leader of their party probably has a subliminal effect on voters, doesn't it?
2: No question. Uh Democrats are in an incredibly tough spot this cycle. Uh Logically, you would want to distance yourself from a very unpopular president. But Biden has also been very open to the fact that he is considering 2024. So in the history of politics, whenever if you're in one party and your president is seeking reelection as the incumbent of your same party, like you can't distance yourself from him. you. You have to be in line with them because it's for the benefit of the party. He is the biggest hurdle this cycle for incumbent Senate Democrats and a lot of these very progressive candidates that you see, like in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania, and um, you know, it's. I think the voters are going to come out. Like you know, there was something that you know when you look at Nevada, for example, nineteen percent of Hispanics approve Joe Biden in the country. Nineteen percent, and this was this used to be the Democrat base, but the reality is, and to your point, what you are saying earlier is that Latinos in this country are fed up with it too, just like everyone else. And so when you when you take all those in this, you know into account. I think that's why we have that red wall speech that we had is because Biden is now realizing that he can't talk about what he's doing. All he can do is revert back to the past and then still fear, hoping to kind of tamper down um, this, the potentiality of a huge, huge, huge wave coming in November. So I take everything that I'm reading these days with a grain of salt, because, you know, the reality is, you know, Americans are frustrated and Americans are feeling it now. They're feeling it at the pump. They're feeling it when they fill up their fridge. And, you know, there's one opportunity on November 8th to, you know, kind of express those feelings on a national level. And that's going to be voting. And, you know, you've seen a surge in um, Republican votes or, you know, you know, Republican candidates this cycle. You've seen more votes for the Republican candidate and the Republican messaging this cycle than you have Democrats. And to think that that's just going to stop. In the next 62 days i don't believe it and i think if anything it's just going to be heightened um and i think it, yeah it, it's going to be a tough tough uh, next 62 days but i think it's going to be um like i said i think i think it's ultimately going to work well in the senate for the republicans and i think we can all agree that in the house you know that's a, i would hate to say a foregone conclusion but um it seems that the numbers are there as well for uh, republican congress next
0: It does seem seem to be that the case. In fact, the House seems a little little more even secure. We start going, you know, in the toss-up races. The Republicans seem to be up in a lot of those races. So there's two things that I think go into the Republican recipe for the final stretch of the election. One is tying each candidate to Biden, the unpopular Democrat, because... In most of these cases, whether it's Patty Murray or Michael Bennett, they facilitated the Biden agenda that's so unpopular. The second one is you've got some really remarkable candidates that before they ran staked out really far left positions, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin being one, Fetterman, Fetterman. in, in Pennsylvania, I, I think people are just starting to get the Fetterman record and understand it. But this is a guy that wants to decriminalize heroin, uh, who's, who has said that uh, releasing uh, second degree murderers from life prison sentences is a good idea. Uh, he has some pretty far out there um, uh, values. In, and I think as people get to uh, do that in these states that are kind of moderate, uh, they're going to feel like this doesn't feel like a good match. How important is the fact that the the far left candidates won in a lot of these important states to the outcome?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, I think we're going to have to use November as the ultimate kind of indicator to see how well these candidates play, given their messaging. I would say, given the environment that we're in now, you know, we're not in a good economic situation. And so, you know, when, when we've been in such, you know, when the economy's strong, we can talk about a lot of these progressive issues, right? Because we have the benefit of saying, OK, yeah, this would be nice if we could do this, if we could do that. But the reality is, is when people are struggling to put food on the table you know, or unable to go to work because they can't afford gas, um, you have to kind of put those things on the back burner. Because the messaging of, hey, we have record inflation, which was caused by government spending. The solution is more government spending. The American people are smarter than that. And so I think you're seeing that where they're trying to tone down the messaging. You see Fetterman. Now, um, a lot of his messaging is actually done through social media where it's not him. He's using like the influencer crowd to kind of like prop him up as a celebrity of, right. of sorts. And the substance is, is lacking. There's, there's not much there in substance. Um, so we don't really know what Sean Fetterman is running on as opposed, you know, other than the fact that we know that he is running against Dr. Oz. And that's all he's hitting on. And right. it's kind of a shame because, you know, the, Amer- the people of Pennsylvania have some legit questions about how radical John Fetterman is going to be. And, you know, he's not taking the opportunity to answer those questions. And, uh, you know, the clock is ticking. We're going to get closer and closer. and I And I do feel that those polls will. Um, titan. I, I'm not. To be honest, though, John, I'm not sure what that's what's going to happen in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, flipping gears to Wisconsin, though, I think we're fine in Wisconsin. Um, Barnes again, such a left wing progressive candidate, and Wisconsin has, you know, it's the Rust Belt. It represents a lot of hardworking Americans who believe in small government, believe in the fact that, like, hey, if we're going to pay taxes. We want the taxes to actually work, not, hey, we're just going to continue to fund the slush fund for D.C. to just spend on all these programs that we'll never see the benefit of or that actually are not benefiting the country at all. And, you know, they're just causing, you know, record inflation. So I think that we're going to see, I think Wisconsin will ultimately be fine. And, you know, ultimately, it's just going to come down to how frustrated America is, which is a shame, right? You know, we should be voting on who's inspiring us, who's giving us the, you know, it's morning in America, you know, the the 1980s messaging that, you know, we, we saw during elections. Um, unfortunately, that that's just not what we're seeing these days. And it's kind of, you know, it's a shame because the American people want to be inspired. They want to feel that there's a future for this country, that we're going to get out of the mess that we're in now. We're going to be able to go back to work and feed our families and like continue to to drive forward as a society, and yeah. um, unfortunately, and we saw that in, in Pennsylvania with Biden's speech. It's just you know he had to revert back to the past, and everything is so bad, yeah. You know, in this country because of you know President Trump and this that. And it's like you know it, it's just a shame the the, the kind of how we you know the body politic and the discussions yeah. that we have. If you society. can't
0: talk about your record, you got to go backwards, right? That, that that's the, the challenge exactly. that Democrats have. They have to keep making Trump the boogeyman because their two years in office have not gone the way most of them. When, you know, the worst the best poll for Democrats is that 69% of the country thinks we're going in the wrong direction. The worst is 80%, 69 to 80%. Those are historic numbers in terms of dissatisfaction with a direction of the country. And I think that that's going to be the undercurrent that the 538s and others may not be measuring. There's just a general, we want to change because we don't like where we're headed uh, moment. I, I want to ask this real quickly, uh, James, what's the best way for for people to stay and work with all the work you're doing at Senate Working Group, all the great writing you do, all the political analysis. Uh, You're you're a rich resource with a lot of great things going on. What's the best way to stay in touch with you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, check us out. Our website is senateworkinggroup.org. We periodically just post kind of like what we've been doing in town, um, a recap of different events. Right. that we do. And then the writing that I do, I usually um, will post it just on Twitter. I like to, uh, to use that as that platform. So you can follow me at real Jimmy Kimmy, um, on Twitter. <laughs> and, I like uh, that. That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. It rolled off the tongue well. It's pretty memorable. I do get confused for Jimmy Kimmel, um, but don't <laughs> let that fool you. It's Jimmy Kimmel.
0: <laughs> You're doing a lot more serious work than Jimmy Kimmel. That's the good news. <laughs> Important stuff. Uh, what an honor to have you on, James. And uh, folks, go check out SenateWorkingGroup.org. It is a really remarkable organization. Trying to make sure that the uh, you get the most out of your money invested in Congress, the most out of your constituency relationship with your members in the Senate, uh, a really great organization, and of course, as you can tell, uh, doing some really great analysis on the election of uh, it's going to be a big midterm election. So, uh, James, what an honor to have you on! Can't wait to get you back on. I think we'll probably need you on before election day to give us some more refereeing. Anytime, yeah, I'd love to do
2: it anytime, and I really appreciate. Um, you, John, you're doing great stuff and um, appreciate uh, having the opportunity to speak to your listeners. And um, yeah, let's, I can't wait till next time. I'm
0: ready for it. It's going to be good. This was a great conversation. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a few seconds. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Big thank you to Congressman Roy and James Kimmy for spending so much quality time. I really felt like we got a lot of substance and discussion out of those interviews. You've got a checklist now of Senate races to watch, thanks to James. And of course, the real ideas that Republicans are going to run on in the fall coming from Congressman Chip Roy, who is an ideas machine and who really believes that you not only say what you mean, you mean what you say, and you do what you say you're going to do. You heard that in that interview today. Really exciting. Before we sign off for the night, I want to go double back to something that I worked on. I hinted at it yesterday in the podcast, but I think it is so essential when we look at what Judge Eileen Cannon did on Labor Day. The top line was, all right, she named a special master, which is what former President Donald Trump asked for. But there's a lot more to that dynamic that isn't being fully focused on. And I really want to draw into this a little bit more. Very important to see what the judge does in this ruling. She not only appoints a special master, she cast doubt on the Justice Department, which claimed it had an honor system that was properly segregating the records that were privileged for President Trump. She said, hey, you gathered 500 pages of returning client privileged documents. That's concerning. You took clothing, medical records, tax records. What's that about? That wasn't in the search warrant. And then at least two of the privileged sets of documents that were specially protected that were supposed to be segregated by the taint or the filter teams, as they're called, the honor system, the justice, actually got through and went to the frontline investigators, meaning the filtering didn't work despite all the promises. She called the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department, not the FBI, for falsely promising they could get the job done when they had failed at it over collection of evidence inappropriate sharing of privileged materials with the frontline investigators. And here's the other thing that she pointed out. I just want to focus on this for a second because we broke this story about 10 days ago. We got the memo from the National Archives on May 10th, 2022. We broke this last week that confirmed unequivocally that President Joe Biden initiated the criminal investigation against his former rival, Donald Trump, the head of the opposition party, his likely challenger in the 2024 presidential election, he initiated it by ordering the National Archives to send records that had been returned by President Trump to the FBI. That started the criminal investigation. We broke that. We reported that. Some of the mainstream media tried to downplay it. But in the ruling yesterday, Judge Eileen Cannon, Judge Eileen Cannon said this, which is that it is essential to understand that this investigation was done because it was requested by the incumbent president. Requested by the incumbent president, meaning, meaning that Joe Biden asked for it to begin. How did he do that? By asking the National Archives to send to the FBI these documents that would then trigger a grand jury probe within days of it being transmitted. This judge has some serious concerns about the entire legacy, the pathway that this criminal investigation began. And on multiple occasions, she used language that made clear that she disagrees with the government. Here's a perfect line. The court takes a different view on this record, meaning the ability of the government to use its filter teams to protect Trump's privacy and privileges. She disagreed on that. She had some beg to differs and other language in this ruling. This judge has done more to really call out the sort of concerns that are out there in the privacy protection. It's a reminder that just because you're a former president, you don't forfeit your privileges and your constitutional rights. And I think Judge Eileen Cannon down in Florida reminded us of that. And if you hadn't heard this, Kevin Brock, the former FBI assistant director, the chief of intelligence for the FBI under Robert Mueller, he said he's so concerned by what he saw in the judge's orders, he has a belief that the entire search warrant and its collections may be thrown out as fruits of the poisonous tree. That's an FBI guy saying that, criticizing his own agency. That is a very big deal. Check that out as well on the Just the News site out of our Washington Bureau today. A lot of great stuff. All right, folks, really proud of what we're doing. Check out justinews.com. We got you covered 24-7. In the meantime, we're going to head into the evening wishing that God bless you in this great country as he always has. Thank you for listening to John Solomon Reports, a podcast from justthedews.com.